0: It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geberer with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this is not just another episode. This is launching a new series, and the first episode in our new series has been generously sponsored in memory of Pesha, Bas Yisrael, Abalas, Tzedakah, V'Chesed. And I'd also like to welcome a new sponsor, Gingerbread Miniatures and Cakes, personalized for all occasions, located in the five towns Check it out at GB underscore gingerbread, or you can call or text at 917-596-3474. Make sure to use code JHS for a 10% discount on all orders. And I'll post the information in the summary of the episode and the text so you can see the information there. And uh, this is actually a very special milestone episode. This is episode number 200 of Jewish History Soundbites in a little less than a year and a half of production. So I want to take the opportunity uh, here to thank all of you listeners for making it happen and for keeping me going and for all your feedback and for listening. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, we've created not just a group of of listeners and talkers, but a community of generating great interest in modern Jewish history, and so I want to thank you all for that. And of course, I want to thank the producers of Jewish History Soundbites for making it happen. Um, we will be wrapping up another few cities in our Great American Jewish Cities episode uh, series also. I didn't forget about it. It's just the end of the summer, and I'll just wrap up another few over the next few weeks, and we'll hold off for the rest for round two. Next spring, we'll go back to the uh, cities episode. Just uh, this this past week, I had the schus, the opportunity to be able to participate in a series of lectures for the Shalavim Yeshiva on modern Jewish history, which was very enjoyable uh, for me, and I hope for the participants as well, so I want to mention that I'm available for lectures on Zoom, online, in person, in uh, yeshivas, and similar uh, for educational or even non-educational frameworks. Um, Now let's move on to the series, talking about a new series here that we're launching in honor of our 200th episode, and it's about the challenges and the story, the history of uh, girls and women's education, Jewish traditional education in modern times, the background of it and what led up to it, the changes that happened, the Jewish people that affected the Jewish woman in particular. And this is not a history of Beis Yaakov. I just want to make that disclaimer at the beginning. And Sarah it's obviously going to play a prominent role later on in the series, the development of the Beis Yaakov and the role that Sarah had in founding it and her vision. But this is not a story of Beis Yaakov. This is a story, a very broad story, of the Jewish people in modern times through the prism of of uh, the challenges specifically facing women and women's education. Um, so there is sponsorship availability for the next few episodes. Um, so please be in touch with me about that. And, um, and um, you know, of course, if you want to um, sponsor it, uh, in memory of someone, or for a business, for advertising, any 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 type of sponsorship, to be in touch with me. Um, there's many great sources on the topic, um, so i be. I'm not going to uh, trouble by quoting, you know, as as is customary on this uh, on this podcast, uh, but by quoting each one. But you can be in touch with me about sources primarily. There's some great books overview of the times. There's uh, great books by uh, several books by Rachel Meneken, Gershon Bakon, of course, and specifically about Beis we have uh, Nomi Seidman's recent book, which has a wealth of information. Pearl Banish's book, of course, is a classic, and there's many, many more. There's a host of articles and books on the subject, and there's definitely no shortage of material. So. Hopefully we'll get around to as much of uh, the topic as possible. So part one, which we're going to get into today, is an, is uh, about the you know, uh, general situation in Eastern Europe at the turn of the century, and it's primarily about girls and girls' education and the challenges facing women, uh, Jewish women, traditional Jewish women at the time. And um, and uh, again, like I said, we'll get into Beis Yaakov, most of... Most of what is well known about Yaakov, not most, a lot of what is well known about Yaakov and Sarah is uh, we need to set the record straight on it, to say the least. But um, but but we're gonna only get to that later in this series. I want to speak much more about uh, the background and some other, uh, you know, uh, s- s- parts of the story that are not not as well known and talked about. I want to open up with the story, actually. In August of 1903, there was a rabbinical conference in Krakow. In August of 1903, there was also, at the same exact time, pretty much a couple of days apart, was the sixth Zionist Congress in Basel, where Theodor Herzl presented the Uganda plan to the Zionist Congress, which became very hotly debated in the and uh, you know, very became a defining moment essentially in the history of the Zionist movement. So another part of Europe, in le- much less famous than that Zionist Congress, was this rabbinical conference in Ka- in Krakow. But this rabbinical gathering was very important as well. Um, it was to organize rabbinic leadership to face the challenges of the day: in modernity, assimilation, secularization, education. Uh, political changes, and, and all kinds of a host of other challenges specific to the rabbinate also. And the failure of this conference, which it was a failure, um, led to the rise of Orthodox politics, meaning rabbinical conferences were not going to work in the modern world, and uh, therefore the change has to become political, which uh, ultimately would lead to to parties like the Hagodes Yisrael, primarily Hagodes Yisrael and others, and the organization, the idea that rabbis should come together to organize, to speak about the challenges of the day was one of the rabbis uh, in the letter, the flurry of letter writing that took place before this this uh, August gathering, he wrote that in an age of congresses, the rabbis internationally, we're talking about, from many different countries around the world, the rabbis should get together as well. And the one who really... Uh, initiated it, spearheaded it, organized it, and carried it out was a, was, was again, someone un, not, you know, on the periphery of the Jewish world at the time, not well known at all. He was a fellow by the name of Rabbi Aaron Mendel HaKohen, and he was a rabbi of the Ashkenazi Jewish community in Cairo, Egypt. And he got it together, and he planned the agenda, an interesting individual, and he later wrote his account of it, and um and uh, he was unable; it was unsuccessful in getting most rabbis to even attend. Many didn't attend because they didn't care. <laughs> Many attended; didn't attend because they opposed it. And there was all sorts of, uh, you know, planning and stage. I don't want to get too much into it because it's not the topic. I want to get to the point. Um, one of the prominent members of the conference actually was um, Rabbi Leo Akiva Rabinovich, who was the rabbi in Poltava, and he was the editor, founder and editor of, of the one of the first uh, um, religious Jewish newspapers, HaPeles, and he attended the conference and, and uh, also wrote an account of it. So Jewish education, the point I want to get to is that Jewish education was a major item on the agenda and for boys. And surprisingly, also at some point in the conference, Also for girls, all of a sudden girls' education came onto the agenda, right? They were talking about modifying the cheder system and trying to improve it and get it better when all of a sudden girls' education came onto the agenda and a rabbi of a small Polish town uh, near Warsaw, his name was Rabbi Menachem Mendel Landau of Novidor, he proposed that, and he also wrote an account of the conference. By the way, these three people who wrote the accounts of this conference have three different versions of what happened you might think that they're actually talking about three different uh, rabbinic gatherings but that's that's uh that's the nature of things in any event so the the um he gets up and he proposes that jewish education may solve the secularization and other issues uh facing jewish girls at the time and there were many other very serious issues in jewish society at the time, that were specifically facing Jewish girls, and 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 challenges because of modern times and because of other developments in Jewish and European society, and therefore he proposed that maybe a focus on Jewish education and empowering Jewish girls from a young age with an identity, with knowledge about where they come from and who they are, and Jewish law and. And and all that would prevent many of the other issues that arise for Jewish girls and women later on in life. Um that was his proposal, which was considered a radical proposal. And Elijo Akiva Rabinovich, who was the Kanoi of that conference, he was vehemently opposed and it became an issue of debate. But as it happens, the topic of and the debate and the going back and forth about uh, providing a, in traditional Jewish society, education for girls had been already going on for several decades, at least in Galicia. You remember Galicia, where Krakow is in Galicia, which I'm going to get back to why Galicia is unique in this story. Um, is uh, is under the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is, which is, you know, different than being under the Russian Empire, and it's also different than being in Germany. Um, speaking of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So it's under the Habsburgs um, in Galicia, and you're talking about a phenomenon during that time, the secularization in general of Jewish society, but specifically of girls escaping from their families, sometimes even to monasteries and converting to Christianity, sometimes escaping from arranged marriages um, with men who they couldn't relate to, because the girls were more cultured or more integrated into society, and the men were not, which will explain how that came to be. So the difference between Habsburg Galicia, where Krakow was, where this rabbinical conference was, where later Sarushinir was going to go and found the base Yaakov. So there was already emancipation and equal rights, and from eighteen, from the early eighteen hundred, from mid eighteen hundreds. But the edict, uh, you know, 1867 was a big, uh, um, shift in, 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 in complete equal rights and emancipation for the Jews of, uh, Galicia, for the Jews of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It went in stages within the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but the Emperor Franz Joseph II and, the in the edict of 1867 granted full emancipation. So now they have emancipation. Now they're part of society. Um, so there's, it goes in different directions. There's the success of modernity, the success of the enlightenment, and there's this integration and acculturation into society. And that has a tremendous effect and impact on Jewish life in Galicia, Jewish life in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in many ways. And in, in, in particular, uh, um, uh, affects the women in Jewish society where Whereas if we compare that to the Russian Empire at the time, where much more Jews lived, where it was pretty much the opposite. There was no emancipation, there was no equal rights, there was no different direction. The only different direction was that it was actually worse for the Jews at some point because there were pogroms and then the Laws were promulgated, there was a lot of reactionary policy, and uh, enlightenment was only slowly arriving in Russia. There was a haskal, there was a non-Jewish enlightenment, and a Jewish enlightenment, but it went in a different way and it had a different form. So we do have to examine the phenomenon, and of course Germany is a whole different story altogether. So we do have to examine the phenomenon of the status of women and girls in Jewish society and as far as education is in Jewish society based on geography, based on where they are. And we'll make a case in point, again, explaining the uniqueness of Galicia. The compulsory education law is passed in 1869. The girls start to go to public school to save their brothers because there's compulsory education. But if the public schools are overcrowded, then then there's not enough room for all the students, then obviously they're not going to force the students to go. So many Hasidic homes choose to send their girls, their daughters, to public school to comply with the compulsory education law. And this way they can still hide their boys in the cheder and in the yeshiva. And, uh, and that, that was considered an accepted norm. Um, so the, what the result ends up being is that they're going to public school and they're speaking in German, later on in Polish, and they're getting exposed to literature and to the society and to the values and to the everything. And they become more integrated. Well, the boys don't as in the Hasidic homes we're speaking about, right? In the enlightened homes, of course, the boys were also sent to the public schools. Um, so ultimately, they would not want to marry a religious Hasidic boy, and many of them, like I said, would run away. Some of them would convert. Some of them even had um, ended up marrying non-Jews. They met them in the public school, you know. And, and some, some Hasidic fathers would prefer to send their daughters to the Catholic convent. Uh, schools, they were private schools as opposed to sending them to the public school because they were all girls. It was only girls in those schools, so sometimes they would send them to that. But then they're exposed to the Catholic values. It ends up being a bit of a shidduch crisis. Uh, there wasn't, it wasn't many, you know, many, very often the, the Hasidic boy was undesirable by the, the new, uh, girl from the Hasidic home, but with a different value system. So it, it resulted in a shidduch crisis. So there's the, Historical precedent for that. I'll bring it out with another story. There was a a uh, a young lady named Anna Kluger. She was born Chaya Kluger, and she came from a both a Hasidic home and a very wealthy home. She was on her mother's side a direct descendant. Her mother was a Halberstam, so she was a direct descendant of the Divrei Chaim of Tzans. We're talking about in Galicia, so this is it. This is this is Galicia Hasidus. This is she is an aristocrat, and her father was a wealthy businessman, and and uh, so she's from the growing Hasidic upper-middle class of places like Krakow and Tarnov and Lvov and areas in, in Galicia, and she is sent to public school to get an education, all kinds of schools, actually. It wasn't only public schools, sent the private schools, she had tutors, very educated, very well-rounded, and her parents sent them. They were happy to send her there, and that was accepted, and uh, it was expected that the moment you went into the chuppah, so then you turned into a rabbit, and you turned into a wife of a of a Hasidic boy, and you're no longer pursuing an education, but she decided that she wasn't interested in further pursuing her education and what she did was that uh, after she got away from the Hasidic groom that her parents had chosen for her, she wasn't interested. she took her younger sister. With her, they both ran away in 1909. It caused a big scandal and it got even worse when she got, and she was a smart girl and she got in touch with a lawyer and she tried uh, suing her parents to have her them support her education, to pay for her tuition, to further her education. And uh, she eventually, um, I, I, don't know, I don't know if she got it or not, but she eventually got a degree and she eventually got a Had a doctorate in in history actually, so it makes it related to this subject. But I have Polish history, not of Jewish history, so that's that's just a a case in point where it wasn't just from just another girl out there, but a girl from you know uh, from the elite of 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 society, both in the material and spiritual sense. So in the early 1900s, there are some voices that begin to speak of Jewish education for girls, but this was dismissed. And fathers are very often blamed for the issue. They The parents are supposed to create the environment and the atmosphere in the Jewish home. And the fathers are responsible for educating their own daughters. That's how it had been traditionally for hundreds of years. And very often the non-Jewish schools were blamed. Why did we send them to public schools? Why are we sending them to Catholic schools? Maybe we should keep them at home like we always did. And even though... There's the compulsory education law, well, we'll have to work around it, but there's no, we'll pay a fine, maybe there'll be other repercussions, but we can't send them to the public schools. So this is the age of the Haskalah, the age of isms, um, the modern girl from the traditional home, and it's the modern world, there's new ideas, there's new political movements, there's new culture, and there's this generation gap that results, and the Jewish street is becoming more and more active. Um, you know, we mentioned talking about Galicia, but in the Russian Empire, where there was no emancipation, but there is where the generation gap sometimes is even more pronounced, because the Jewish street was all about the politics, the revolutionaries, the getting rid of the czar, the socialism, the the new the new all the newisms, eventually Zionism and the, this is already after the Enlightenment. This is already after the Askal. This is the Jewish street becoming more radicalized at the time. By the way, that 1903, um, rabbinical gathering, one of the things that was on the agenda, they made a very dramatic, uh, um, ceremony out of it, actually, and they condemned the Jewish revolutionaries, young radical revolutionaries, and they proclaimed their loyalty to all their respective governments. It was very important to, to emphasize that because the revolutionaries made a made a bad name for the Jews all over, and it was uh, very problematic. So they wanted to we proclaim loyalty to every Jewish government, to the Tsar, to the Habsburgs, to to everywhere. I guess in Egypt also, to, to everywhere, to the government, and uh, condemning the radicals. Either way, so so the uh, so the 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 what was the public school like? So like I said, the public school becomes accepted. Um, the the girls come home, they're speaking more the local language. In Austro-Hungary, it was either German or further south in Hungarian. And in, in, in Russia, it was Polish or Russian. In fact, if I jump ahead of the story, in, in the Beis of the 1930s, they made a campaign. All right, <laughs> ready for this? A campaign to use Jewish names. Because everyone, and remember, if you made a choice to send to Beis Yaakov, that means you're already separating yourself from almost all Jewish youth in Poland at that time. And so this is the, the most from, the most religious girls in the entire Poland. Their parents were sending them to Beis Yaakov, and they all had Polish names. So they made this campaign within the Beis Yaakov system to start using Jewish names. Okay, so that's how, that's how, that's the extent of it, that it was, that, uh, that the uh that the 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 language changed even, now I've seen in many in many books uh, written, especially in recent years, that um that when we talk about they talk about the secularization of the Jewish people during the years leading up to World War One and then and then moving on to the interwar period, they very often talk about how the majority of Jewish students were sent to non-religious schools. And one of the schools that always comes up in that context is the Tarbut schools. Everyone was sending to Tarbut schools, everyone was sending to the Bund schools, and no one was sending to the Cheder, no one was sending to the religious, uh, traditional schools anymore. So that is simply incorrect, because, the and for very one very simple reason, the Tarbut schools charged high tuition, and almost no, no, almost no one could afford it. The Tarbut schools were elite they were at, at best middle class, uh, almost always upper class. And, uh, the Bund was a different story. It was definitely not for the elite and, and all, different story it was also much smaller. D- different discussion. We'll, we'll get to that another time. So were the majority of Jewish students in religious schools if they weren't in the Tarbut schools? No. Where were they? In the public schools. Hasidim would send them to the public schools and the, and the Hasidim would preferred Public schools over the Tarbut or the Bund schools because, because this way it's, it's, they're not being actively influenced in a non-traditional sense. They're just going to public school. It's not a big deal. Now, another aspect of it is that we often talk about how the immigrants going to the United States, they had to send their children to public school. And then look what happened. What's overlooked is, is that it was happening in, in those, in the European countries at the same time for sure for all the girls even from hasidic homes and very often for the boys as well it was free education and uh, very often uh, the boys were also sent to public school so the whole idea of of sending to public school and getting a jewish education in modern times is not only about america it's not only sending them to the zionist tarbut school or the Bundes school it's also about the public schools and it's also about boys and girls and it's it's really a a huge a huge topic. So we move on, and um, so th- another, 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 again, another uh, topic on the rise at the time. Other couple of topics, just to give more of a general context. There's a rise in Jewish feminism across Europe. There's a fascinating woman named Bertha Pappenheim. But there's also many others, and she came from a religious home, also a wealthy home in Vienna. Her mother was from Frankfurt, which she eventually moved to. And, uh, prestigious religious home. And she somewhat remained Orthodox for the rest of her life. And, um, and she was an active in, in, in Jewish feminism. She was a fascinating individual. She never married. She was actually gained distinction as being eventually many years later. She was, uh, exposed as the famous Anna O of, uh, one of Sigmund Freud's earliest, uh, researches on. On the origins of hysteria, which she suffered from, and 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 she was treated by one of uh, Freud's contemporaries. Either way, she goes on to be a very active woman, social activist, creating shelters for women and in orphanages, and she started a a, a an organization called Judischer Freibund in Germany as a woman's organization, and uh, definitely had feminist ideals, strengthening women's rights and. Helping them gain, get employment and not in, in her orphanage. It wasn't just preparing them for marriage. It was to give them vocational training. It was definitely with a, a strong uh, feminist or, or orientation. And, and she, and she was, be, got involved in controversy because she would criticize, she would criticize contemporary Jewish society and the role that women, traditional Jewish society and the role that women played in it. And she was very vocal about it and and uh, and it became a very controversial issue Now she had a very again strong affiliation both to orthodoxy and later on to Beis Yaakov. She visited the Krakow seminary several times at least once, I think a few times she was definitely in correspondence with them. We'll get to it later on i'll I'll, I'll look it up by then, but either way, so she becomes a a major player on the Jewish scene. You're talking about an organization that has thousands of people, and she's tackling all the major issues facing Jewish women across Europe. She visited Galicia several times, and to see the plight of Jewish women, the economy, and family, and all kinds of issues, and which I don't want to get into. And um, and the and she and she wrote a lot. She was she wrote many journals and newspapers and. And 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 she spoke at conferences, and she participated in general feminist conferences, uh, non-Jewish ones, representing uh, Jewish feminism. So this becomes an issue: whether whether it was liked or not, whether it was promoted or not, whether it was it was controversial or not. It was there, and the fact that it was there becomes part of the story of uh, of of the change that over that over that that Jewish women in in uh, traditional Jewish women in modern times are going through in the different countries. And the, it brings me to the last one, which is, want I mentioned in passing, was that female suffrage uh, becomes an issue. Women's voting rights. When we talk about suffrage in the United States, they just celebrated the centennial of it. Well, Poland, independent Poland, beat the United States by about a year. Women were granted voting rights in Poland in 1918, about a year before they were in the United States. And, and, uh, and, and, and the new political parties were all trying to get the women's votes. So the Agudice Stroll in Poland needed votes and they wanted to get the women's vote, right? So that's when we later on discuss in this series about why the Agudice Stroll adopted a And, you know, the fact that they were trying to garner the female vote definitely played a role and was a, a factor in that. Um, but what's interesting is that they, is that there was this opposition to women voting in traditional society. So they would want them to vote in the municipal elections or the national elections for the government for the same, but in the kahal elections, in the internal Jewish elections, they are opposed to women voting. Traditional elements were opposed to women voting. It was considered too prominent for women to be that, that visible in society. By the way, in Eretz Yisrael at the time, in Israel at the time, with the British mandate set up, for the Jewish community, the Vardhutir, to uh, to uh, I'm sorry, the Knesset Israel, to to, to, to the, the recognized Jewish community, and they gave the women voting rights. And the, the Zionists or uh, who, who the Jewish agency who ran it and the British Mandate, who was the government, they gave the women voting rights. It was opposed by all the rabbis in Yerushalayim and in Eastern Europe across the borders There's this, you could see the document till today. It exists. Um, and, uh, and, and all kinds of other rabbis from Europe. I, I forget the names. I should have looked up that proclamation before, uh, this episode as well. But what's most interesting is both Rav Cook and Rav Chaim Zunfeld both signed in it. They agreed that we can't have women voting. That's completely inappropriate for traditional Jewish women to vote and participate in that. So you're talking about an era where that's, uh, I don't know what happened to that, uh, that uh, is sir. it doesn't seem to be forbidden anymore in contemporary uh, uh, society, but either way, that's what it was then. But and, and and you're talking about this is the hot topic, and this exists in all areas. It's not only about Jewish education, it's in feminism, it's in suffrage, it's in all the other challenges facing Jewish women at the time, and therefore, that's the, the situation of facing Jewish society at the turn of the century and the early decades of the 20th century. This was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, virtual tours, lectures, and sponsorships. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on pod, uh, uh, at, at Podbean, and follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.